This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Well, Happy New Year also, everyone. Um, we last week had the, the unique, as far as my memory remembers, uh, unique privilege of having church on Sunday morning on, on Christmas. That was pretty special. And we got to, to reflect on, uh, on Christ. He is Savior, Christ the Lord, that he came to, to rescue us. He came to rescue us from our sin, to redeem us from the curse of the law, and to adopt us into God's family as his beloved children. And, and we got and now, you know, after Christmas, here we are, it is New Year's. Where do we go from there? Um, and as I was, I was thinking about that question uh, and what, what passes we should go over this morning, my mind just kept coming back to the book of James uh, in chapter 3 in particular. And James has some surprising things, I think, to say about wisdom and about strife, and I just had a a burden to to share that with everyone. Um, As we come to a new year, it felt appropriate as a time of reflection to to step back and to think about, to recall these words and and to pursue living a life of wisdom. Because we live in a world of strife, do we not? Kids, strife, you guys know it's strife, conflict, bickering, fighting. It, it, it surrounds us. Titus 3.3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But God, goes on to say, but I find that to be such an accurate picture of the world that we live in. In our society at large, around us, there is division, disagreement, hate, strife, uh, reaching fever pitch as of late and increasing. But closer to home, it's in our homes too, isn't it? In, in our lives, it's present in our families, in our marriages, in our children, meaning amongst our children, but also between parents and children, there is strife and there is conflict. Uh, It's at work, it's with roommates. I'd wager it is present in every social group that you belong to, that you are a member of in any way. There is is strife. Do you find that to be true? That there is strife in in your life? There is in mine. (laughs) And I think that James, James can help us this morning. I was on my phone reading Apple News a couple weeks ago, and I saw an article in there. I didn't read it. I think it was News Plus, uh, but it was entitled, I thought the title was, was, was interesting. The title was The Myth of the Good Family. Why Americans are obsessed with stories of falls from grace. I think America is a little obsessed with, with the idea of a fall from grace, with this notion that a good family is a myth. 
And I think there is an idea that people want to um, think that everyone is as broken as them. Because there's truth to that. We are all, we are all broken. But I think it is possible to take that idea too far. Um, and this is hard to talk about without sounding kind of judgy. But God's word has hope for us this morning. Uh, James tells us this morning is that it doesn't have to be that way. Christ came to rescue, to heal, to redeem, to restore. He, he calls us to live in light of this, in wisdom. And, and so that brings us to, to James. And we are jumping straight into the middle of the book of James. And so I want to help us uh, orient ourselves a little bit. James is kind of like one of the wisdom books, but in the New Testament. It's the closest to like the Psalms of the Proverbs, maybe of the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. And it, it has much more of a focus on, on practice than it does on, on doctrine. The practice is, of course, founded by and based on, on truth, but he focuses on, the, on the, the practical side of things. And James is essentially a call, you might say, to authentic, real, mature, whole faith. To summarize in a sentence, you might say, authentic faith is revealed by a changed life. That's what James is about. And to truly come to have believed in Christ is to be born again. It's to have a new heart, a new life. God does a work from the inside out, and this does not leave one unchanged. You cannot be the same after this has happened. And James focuses on three primary areas that this will get tested in, evaluated in, proved out in, we grow in. One of them is trials. The other area is money and mercy. And the third is speech and conflict. And we are jumping into James 3, which is about speech and conflicts. And he warns us throughout the book of the dangers of being double-minded, of being split in our devotion. Uh, and he calls us to be, you might say, it says perfect, you might say mature, wholehearted, complete, uh, not, not divided. And so we're gonna focus on chapter three here where it talks about speech and conflict. And what he says, for us today, I think, is that strife is a, you might even say the, primary expression of worldliness in our lives. And God has saved us to a life of meekness and grace. I hope to, to show us that this morning from James. He's ringing the alarm bell, and it's a sort of a serious passage for, for New Year's Day, but he's shining the spotlight on, on an important thing for us that I think we don't always pay attention to. Pray that God would give us conviction, that he would direct our way and give us hope for, for change. And so we are going to be seeing the instrument of strife and then the heart of strife and then the heart of wisdom. First, the instrument of strife in verses one through 12, he says is the tongue the instrument, the, the tool of strife. My children often sometimes get nails and screws confused, uh, and the, the tool that you use for each is different, right? You grab a screwdriver and try to bang a nail in, it's gonna be a while. <laughs> or a shoe is an even worse tool. Um, 
And so, you know, what the right tool for the right job, but what is the tool that causes strife? It's the tongue. The tongue causes strife. He begins in verses one to two. He says, not many of you should, be, should become teachers. We're just gonna skip over that one. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, it says, we all stumble and teachers especially. You know, here I am standing up here. Whoops. Um, but it, it is a great privilege. It is an honor to, to be able to be here, to open God's word, to instruct the church. And, and James cautions that this should, should not be approached lightly. He says this is a, a great and honorable task. And some do approach it lightly or wrongly. And they, they pursue the role of teacher for the status the influence, the authority that they think it, it offers, and many do abuse it. it and, and James is here to remind us, it is a matter of life and death. He ends the book at the end of chapter five. He says, let him who know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. And and when we open God's word, we are, we are dealing with matters of, of life and death, and so it is of great significance. Jesus reserved his harshest words for the Pharisees, uh, the false teachers who neither enter the kingdom themselves, and they also prevent others from entering, entering with their false teaching. Teachers, he says, are held to a stricter standard the greater possibility to lead people away, greater possibility for just plain old hypocrisy. And, and so he says there is a strict strictness. And then he goes on, however, to speak to all of us. This is not all about teachers, special application there, but he, he goes on to say, we all, in verse, verse two, we all stumble in many ways. What a sad fact, no? Just let that settle. We, he includes himself, all stumble. We sin, we transgress, we dishonor God, and we do this in many ways. We do what he forbids. We fail to do what he commands in many ways. Look at James chapter one, verse 21. He says there also in a context about speech. He says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Overflowing wickedness is what he says. We say things like, oh, I've got a few things I'm working on. I'm struggling with anger. Or he, James puts a hand on our shoulder and he says, brother, you have rampant wickedness. And he says, we have this in many ways. We, we all stumble in particular in our speech. Our, our stumblings are various, but we all share this one common one. He says, in our speech. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. I've had many opportunities to, to, to realize this, by the way. The past couple weeks studying and preparing and thinking, what not? one cannot help but become more aware <laughs> of things you say and the way that you say them uh, to your family. Uh, but he, he says here, we all do this. But his point 
is not to concede defeat. His point is not to say, don't worry about it. It, it kind of looks like that, if he, like he, almost like he's saying, nobody can do this. If you can do that, you're perfect, so don't worry. Because he, he, he doesn't mean that by perfect. He doesn't mean sinless. He means complete, mature, whole. Uh, trials have this effect, he says in James chapter 1, verse 4. Trials have this effect of bringing about this maturity, this completeness of faith. Chapter 1, verse 26, he actually says, it's not just that we can do this, but that we must do this. Chapter 1, 26, James says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Those are some strong words. He says it's worthless. He says that if, if coming to know Christ hasn't changed our mouths, hasn't changed our, our tempers, it's, it's worthless. Because th that so-called religion, he, he doesn't use the word religion in the way that we often use it, meaning just like the, the external form. When he says religion here, he's talking about a genuine devotion to God, uh, a real relationship with God. Um, and he goes on in chapter 2 to talk about dead faith. There is a kind of proclamation of faith that doesn't correspond to a changed heart. And he says a changed heart leads to changed words. So I just want, what we're trying to say is that this is attainable. This is possible by the grace of God. As a believer in Christ, indwelt by the Spirit with a new heart, it is possible, it is attainable to bridle your tongue. And I, I think that's important to know. It's important, I think, not to have a defeatist attitude. Like, well, nobody can do this, so I'm just going to say whatever I want, however I want. I'm not perfect, neither are you. Um, I went to Yellowstone over the, over the summer, and there was this one area, I don't know if some of you, I imagine, have been, where they have these pools of, of water with they're just like steaming and are weird colors. And there's all these signs that say, don't go off the path. Because there's, the ground is fragile and there's like boiling water <laughs> very close to the surface. And so guess what everyone did? They stayed on the path. They heeded the warning. I remember walking along the path and there was a hat just off the path, like a few feet. And I was almost tempted, like it's a perfectly good hat just sitting there, I should go, I should go get it. Um, but that person didn't say, uh, you know, because the sign says everyone who, who, who walks here stumbles. They can fall. They can get hurt. So don't walk there is the idea. Not ignore the sign like, well, we're all going to fall. They, they, they heed the warning and they avoid the danger. And that, that's what James is calling us to, to heed the warning and, and to avoid the danger. Because he says uh, next that the tongue has an unexpected influence. It, it's unexpected. He, he gives us a couple illustrations of this, uh, the bit in the horse's mouth that controls the whole horse and, and the rudder that controls this humongous ship. And, and the idea in both cases is that the size of a thing doesn't determine its impact, right? You have a small thing controlling, directing a very large thing. And words can seem insignificant, but they have a huge influence in our lives, in the world. We even have a phrase for this. It's an antiphrase, but we say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And we all know that's not true, uh, but we say it to comfort ourselves, but uh, that's a lie. 
The tongue is a fire, James says. The tongue is a fire, verse 6. It, how great a forest, verse 5, is set ablaze by such a small fire. A small spark, right, can burn down a whole forest. Californians, you all know this. We all know this very well, except at my campsite, where it takes like two hours to get the tiny thing going everywhere else. A small spark can burn down a forest. He says it sets on fire the entire course of life. Entire relationships, lives can be destroyed with words. Have you experienced this? Harmful words. Uh, We've all been hurt. We've all hurt others with words. And if we think back to some, probably some of our greatest difficulties in life, at least with people, have been related to words that they've said. Like, I'm leaving. I I don't love you. Or even, I hate you. Words like, you're not good enough. Words like, come on, nobody will know. Nobody will see. We hurt, we tempt, we belittle, we interrupt, we ignore, we mock, we lie. And these have great impact on people's lives, on our lives. And we should not underestimate the power, the influence of words. And it's important also to note that that the tongue is just the instrument, right? In both of these cases, the bridle and the rudder, there is still what controlling it? There's a pilot, right? There's a pilot controlling the rudder. The point is not the tongue per se, like the bite, you know, the thing in your mouth. It's it's the heart that speaks the words. Words are just the instrument. Um, Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You will give account for every careless word, Jesus says. It's the pilot. If you imagine the Titanic, the pilot made a a wrong choice there and led to great, great catastrophe. Imagine if they were to, you know, send divers down, they recover, and they find the rudder. They pull the rudder out, and they put the rudder on trial. Why'd you do that? Why'd you steer that ship into into that iceberg and not do something? It's not the rudder's fault. It's the pilot's fault. And Jesus says that it's the heart that speaks the words. One author said it this way. He said that words are like a stick floating on top of a river. And it it tells you the direction of the current, but it's the massive rushing river of the current that is the actual thing moving, not, not the stick. And in that sense, our words show the direction of our hearts. That, that doesn't mean, though, that they can't still have a disastrous effect, right? They are, they are the sharp sword that our heart uses to impact other people's lives. And he goes on to say more in verse 6. He dives deeper. He says, the tongue is a fire, the world of unrighteousness. And there's some tricky grammar here. It's sort of, it's sort of tricky, but it kind of floored me when I first understood what I think he's saying here. Uh, It's not clear how all the different words join together, the grammar. Um, 
And it, the ESV, I think, doesn't represent it very well. It says a world of unrighteousness. He actually says the world. The tongue is the world of unrighteousness among our body. The New American Standard translates this, this, this way. It says the very world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our body parts. Or another translation, the tongue represents the world of wrongdoing among the parts of our bodies. The world in James, the phrase the world, is used a number of times to talk about the fallen world system, fallen humanity, the evil world, fallen humanity in rebellion against God. That, that's what the world is. Chapter 4, verse 4, he says, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And he says that's what the tongue is. The tongue is the world in our body. The tongue is the part of our body most often, most readily, most clearly represents the world system. And how does it do that? With strife, with conflict, with jealousy, with selfish ambition. That's kind of surprising to me. If I, if I were to ask you, what is worldliness, what would you say? The first thing that would come to my mind would maybe be some sort of sexual sin is worldliness. Uh, maybe drinking or dancing, maybe rock and roll, I don't know. What, what is worldliness? He says, it's your speech. Our speech is how we most show that we are members of the world still. And he says the tongue is set on fire by, by hell. Also hard to understand what he means there. Is he saying that our tongue will be judged in the fires of hell? That's true. Jesus said that in Matthew 5. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire, Jesus said. Or could it be that he, he means that he's referring to the prime resident of hell, as it were, Satan? We think of the time where, where Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, uh, when, when Peter decided to rebuke Jesus. Um, I, it's hard to choose which one James is talking about here. Uh, probably the latter is what I tend to think. He, he goes on to say in chapter 3 that our speech is demonic. And I think, I think that's what he's saying, that, that our, 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 our speech has... When it's this way, this conflict, this strife, this is demonic in nature, demonic in source. And he goes on with just a litany of, of further descriptions that, that we'll run through. He says that the tongue stains the entire body. Speech can, can stain, they can ruin an otherwise very pleasant time together, can't they? You're having a great time, and then all of a sudden one, one word, one harsh word that comes out from me to my wife or my kids can just ruin, ruin the evening together. Um, he says the tongue is untamable. It is untamable. We can tame animals, but nobody can tame the tongue entirely. By the grace of God, we can bridle it. We can have victory, but it is still a wild beast, and it can rear its head at, at any moment. And a foul word, a harmful word can shoot out. Why? Because verse 8, he says, it is a restless evil. The, it never stops. It says it is full of deadly 
poison. And that is the effect that it has, doesn't it? On one's dear, tender relationships, it, it can turn them sour. It can poison them. The tongue is also unnatural. He says it's a freak of nature. He says, where else does this happen? Right? You don't go to an apple tree to look for an orange. It's not going to happen. You go to the beach, and you don't bring a cup of water and just like take a nice big sip from the ocean because it's all salt water. It's, you don't have salt and fresh in the same place. But he says, from the same mouth comes forth blessing and cursing. This is unnatural. The tongue is an instrument, the instrument of strife, James tells us. It burns down lives. And the question that I want to ask you is, is this how you think of speech? Is this how you think of your speech, of what it's capable of doing? It's a very serious and sobering description of something that I personally don't frequently think a whole lot about. And as I, as I was thinking about this and just my mind was most focused on uh, my own station in life as a dad of four kids, some of them still kind of young, youngest is eight, and a, a married man, um, you know, being, being a, a parent of younger kids, those are some trying, some trying years, pretty tiring years, lots of people really close together, none of them sleeping all that well, and you get, you get some friction, and it's important to think about, as just parents, uh, to ask you, do you speak harshly? Do you make it a pattern of speaking harshly with your kids? Do you, do you have a habit of raising your voice, perhaps, to get them to come in line? He says, J James tells us, that these are short-sighted gains. It works, doesn't it? If you raise your voice a bit, they, they will listen. But it's a short win that leads to a loss in the end. James chapter 1, verse 20, he says, The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It doesn't, it's usually pursuing something that you think is right, and maybe it is right, but it doesn't do it the right way. And uh, parents have a, have a habit. Kids, maybe plug your ears, but uh, just kidding. Kids, ha uh, parents have a habit sometimes of, of griping don't we? We sort of gripe about our kids and we joke about them or we call it venting. Um, that doesn't make it better. At, this happens at work often a lot too. Parents like to, they like to joke about how hard their kids are. Sometimes parents joke about yelling at their kids. Like, oh, we've got to keep the doors shut. They don't hear me yelling at my kids. Uh, but brothers and sisters, it ought not to be so among us, right? God has called us to to, to be gentle and gracious with them. And when, when a foul word comes out, to be just as quick to rush for their forgiveness. And kids, to ask you, do you speak harshly with your parents? Do you speak harshly with, with your siblings? God wants you to know this morning that your words matter a lot. They have the power to burn down lives, or they can be used to praise and exalt God. And spouses, do you use your words to honor each other, 
to build each other up, to care for and nurture each other? Do you spend time together talking when the kids go to bed? Do you argue in front of your kids? Or do you argue when the kids go to bed? Is there conflict? Is there strife? We are continually working through these things in my home. I pray just about every morning that God would help us to to love and to care for one another, to build each other up, to use our words to, to minister to each other. That's my station in life. Yours might be different. If none of that spoke to you, I can imagine you can, you can imagine areas uh, where it does, where it needs to. May we fall on our knees and seek God's mercy to, to change us. That's not the whole story, though. We're spending too much time here. But he, he goes on to say that the grace of God, the, the, the fuller story is that the grace of God can transform our mouths to speak words of, of life, not, not of death. Ephesians 4 says that this is how we build up the church, by speaking the truth in love. We just saw a couple weeks ago in 1 Peter 2 that we are a holy priesthood, that we speak to God on behalf of men, and we can speak to men and women on behalf of God to care for each other with words, right, with, with our tongues. And James says that with true religion, with a living relationship with Christ, we can use our speech for great good. And so he asks in verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? He says, stop and look around. Who among you? Who among you is wise? How do you know? How do you measure wisdom? Is it the person with financial success, the person with the five-year plan? He says, it's by our gentleness. True wisdom is about meekness, it's about gentleness, it's about healing conflict. And he compares these two different kinds of wisdom. He says there's a, a kind that comes from the world and a kind that comes from knowing God. And for, uh, Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, he says, the fear of the Lord, Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So he's not, wisdom here is not just like practical knowledge, is not what he's saying. There's a, some have even gone so far as to say that wisdom in James is almost equated with the Holy Spirit. But he, he's, wisdom here is, is a true relationship with God. It is religion, it is knowing Christ, it is being empowered by the Spirit and then living accordingly. And he goes on to first talk about the false kind. The heart of strife, he says, is self-interest. Um, in verse 14, he says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. These two words, jealousy and selfish ambition, are often paired together in various places in the Bible. Uh, the word jealousy can sometimes be positive, like zeal. Uh, it's here used negatively, uh, the desire to have what others have and make it your own instead. Selfish ambition is sort of an interesting word. It originally referred to paid labor, but then became something more like what we, what we might call mercenary labor, like what's in it for me. Uh, to a pursuit of self-interest, 
Um, it's translated self-seeking in Romans 2. One dictionary defines it as both strife as well as selfishness uh, and selfish ambition. And so the, the common thread between these two things, jealousy and selfish ambition, is self-interest. Uh, and this is the foil, the opposite of wisdom. This is the heart of worldliness. He says it comes from the world, the flesh, and the devil. It says earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. This is the spirit that surrounds us, is in our, in our sinful flesh. It is what the devil tempts us towards pursuing yourself, getting what you want, doing what you want. And this is the opposite of the true knowledge of God. And it says it leads to disorder. It leads to every vile thing. As we think back to what we saw earlier about speech, uh, so much of it is driven by our self-interest, isn't it? James 4 goes on to say exactly that. He says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet, cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. It is our passions. It's we're pursuing what we want uh, quite bluntly. The phrase, but I want it, is almost like a final period, justification, that parents often hear uh, from their kids, and parents also quietly say in their own hearts, but we just don't verbalize it maybe as much as our kids, but I want it. Therefore, I'm supposed to have it. And that same drumbeat, I want it, lies behind many of our choices, our words, and our actions. And so he says, don't pretend. Don't pretend. That's not wisdom. That's not the true knowledge of God. A life where, where self-interest and conflict have a home is not, he says, a life of wisdom. And we sometimes do pretend. We sometimes pretend we, we maybe play the part at church. We fight in the parking lot, but then we're smiles and happy and shaking hands. Had a great week. How was your week? It was all so great. Great that we're all great. Instead, James calls us, he says in James 5, confess your sins to one another. Let us be open and honest about our strife. Seek help from one another. We are a holy priesthood to care for each other. So that's been a long time on the negative. Self-interest, self-pursuit. What does he say wisdom is? Verses 17 to 18 and verse 13. The heart of wisdom, he says, surprisingly, is, is meekness. He says, if we are to be wise, if we are wise, we must show it, which is like what he said earlier in James. Faith without works is dead. Uh, he must show his works by his beautiful conduct, he says. Um, verse 13, by his good conduct or by his beautiful conduct. Um, rather than boasting of wisdom that's not there, he calls us to live lives marked by humility. And it's interesting that meekness, gentleness, humility is the key characteristic of wisdom. And this is the opposite of self-interest. Uh, this is an appropriate view of ourselves. Knowing how much we rely upon God's mercy, we show mercy to others. Knowing the rampant wickedness that's still present in our own hearts, we take little offense when other people sin against us. 
we respond gently, we respond kindly to, to people, knowing that that's how we were won over to Christ. Not by someone yelling the gospel at us, but by someone compassionately sharing the gospel with us. Not being the truth police, telling everyone everything wrong on the internet, that'll take a while. Uh, I used to think I had the spiritual gift of telling people that they were wrong. <laughs> Turns out that's not very helpful, and it's kind of easy to do. Uh, it's, it's a lot harder to, to speak with, with kindness and grace and to, to build people up. And more so, this is how Jesus described himself. Jesus said of himself in Matthew 11, Come to me, all, you who, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. That same word there, gentle, is what we have here, the gentleness of wisdom, the meekness of wisdom. And Jesus says, you will find rest for your souls. This is the character. This is how he says who he is, essentially, in his heart. He is gentle. He is meek. This is wisdom. This is what he calls us to be, meekness that comes from wisdom. What does it look like? He says it's first pure. Again, James just, he goes where I don't think he's going to go. Wisdom or purity wasn't the first thing that came to mind for me, but now I'm thinking about purity. He says that's what wisdom is. The first way it shows is purity. Chapter 1, verse 27, he had said earlier, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's true religion. Amen. True devotion to God shows itself in, in purity, seeking purity in what you, what you say, what you do, what you watch, what you listen to, what you enjoy, our inputs, our outputs. We seek purity. That's wisdom. He goes on to describe another list of, a list of virtues that almost is reminiscent of uh, the fruits of the Spirit in, in Paul's writings. But he says here it's uh, first peaceable, gentle, open to reason. Again, these are not self-interest and jealousy seeking ourselves, but interest in others, not always insisting on, on our own way. We think of James 1.19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. He says we are to be full of good mercy, sorry, full of mercy and good fruits, doing the word, not just, not just hearing, but doing it. He says, helping the poor, not just pronouncing blessings, uh, but acting in a way that, that accords with our faith. Impartial. This is like what James said earlier about not treating the rich man different from the poor man. This phrase, this wisdom, kind of branches out into lots of the book of James. And then he says, sincere, which the word is not a hypocrite as like one word. You should be not a hypocrite. Uh, not pretending, not double-minded, but a genuine faith. This is what James says is, is wisdom. And then he, he sums it up in this proverb in verse 18. He says, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. 
NIV translates it, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. So he's calling us not just to be people who don't make conflict, he's calling us to go further to be people who make peace. The world, our sinful flesh, and the devil, everything around us is seeking to lure us to get what we want, do what we want, pursue what we want. Self-interest, jealousy, strife. But God has made us to be a holy priesthood, people who exist for the purpose of others, people whose main job in life is to heal conflict. And so that is this beautiful vision for what God has called us to be, uh, a whole community of peacemakers. And James asks, who is that way? Who is that way among you? He presents a sobering, a serious warning. But he doesn't do so to break us down. He does so to build us up, to tell us what is possible, what is inevitable even, for those who know Christ. And you say, well, that's all nice and good, but how do, how do we get there? What is our hope? James is not just saying, stop it, be nice. Uh, the hope for change here, he says, is verse 13. Look what he said, wisdom from above. Or not verse 17. Verse, yeah, verse 17. The wisdom from above. Where does it come from? From above. He said in chapter, five, chapter 1, verse 5, ask of God. He will give generously. He doesn't shame you, reproach you, say, oh, I can't believe you need more wisdom. He, he, he's a, a loving, caring father. He, he desires to give us this. The hope that we have for change is the grace of God. It comes from the indwelling spirit of God. Look with me at chapter one, just to see what James says about this. 